invite you this morning to open your Bibles to John chapter 8, the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. If you, um, you want to follow along in the notes, they're in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text is on the back of the notes in the bulletin. And today we'll continue our study of John chapter 8. I'll remind you, this, this encounter with the Jews in Jerusalem began all the way back in chapter 7. What sets up our um, text this morning is all, all the way back in 737, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, and he issues two invitations. The first invitation, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and he'll have living waters flowing from his heart. The second invitation in 812, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He's in the temple. And while he is interacting with the Jews who are challenging him, we're told in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so last week we looked exclusively, what does Jesus say to the Jews who had believed in him? What we saw, what Jesus said was he insisted upon, demanded, told them they must persevere. They must continue in his word. That is the mark of a disciple. And those who don't continue in Jesus' words prove they are not his disciples. And we looked at Jesus' teaching abstracted from what they said. I wanted to just line up, what does Jesus say to fledgling faith? What does Jesus have to say to those who've just come to some belief in him? This morning, we'll look at it from the other side. These Jews who believed something about Jesus, and we'll see their faith is not saving, their faith is not genuine, it does not endure. What, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from them? And to summarize it in, in one sentence, the title here is this, your actions reveal your true father. That is what Jesus will say to them again and again. Their actions, their deeds, their desires reveal their parentage, reveal what family they're in. So let's read... I'll just have us read this morning, um, 8.31 to 44. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, 
and your will is to do your Father's desires. Lord God, pray that you'd give us the faith to receive these hard words, that we would um, hear what Jesus has to say about true faith as he unmasks insufficient, false faith, that, that if there's any here today um, that their, their faith is not genuine, that you would reveal that. For those of us who have faith, who you have worked in our hearts, I pray that you would strengthen it, that we might recognize true faith and its counterfeit. We pray that you would um, exalt your son in our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, the, the goal this morning is, having been told these Jews believed in Jesus, and knowing Jesus will tell them in no uncertain terms, you are of your father, the devil, what is wrong with their faith? I'd imagine trying to figure out both what, what is faith? What does it mean to believe? Because we looked at last week, John's gospel is emphatic. We're saved by faith alone. It's not faith plus or minus anything. And yet John's gospel makes it equally clear. There's more than one thing you can call faith. There's something that we, the author of scripture is comfortable calling faith, as right here, it doesn't save. We saw a similar example in chapter 2 when he was in Jerusalem at the feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them. So my, my goal is to try to both um, get a clear picture of what saving faith is, and then this week to get a clear picture of what, what's insufficient, what's, what's lacking in their faith. So both positively and negatively, we can have a clear understanding of what it is that Christ is calling us to, what it is that saves. So the first thing we learn about these Jews who had believed in Jesus is that the Jews are offended by Jesus' words. The Jews are offended by Jesus' words. Now, you remember, Jesus makes how you interact with his word the critical issue. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And again, he's going to point out to them, my word finds no place in you. So the critical issue is going to be remaining or abiding in his word. That's, that's the requirement. That's the hallmark of genuine faith. Positively, what does saving genuine faith do? It feeds on, it abides on, it remains in Jesus' teaching and his words. It doesn't reject Jesus' teaching and his words. They're offended by that. They're offended by it. There's a little scoffing in their response. Because... Um, what they don't like is the implication that they're enslaved. So Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You know the truth. The truth will set you free. They answered, we're offspring of Abraham. I've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? You can hear the incredulity in their question. They don't like what Jesus is implying. Jesus imp saying he'll free them implies they need freeing. They don't like that. So, Point A here, they proudly insist they are Abraham's offspring. Literally, the Greek would be seed. We're Abraham's seed. We're descendants of Abraham. We'll get to more of that in just a moment. And based upon that, they then deny that they've ever been enslaved to anyone, which is a kind of ridiculous claim to make. So, so their response to this, Jesus saying, you'll, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. We're, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. It's not entirely clear what they mean when they say that. Point one, this would be an, insert, an absurd claim if made politically. And maybe that is what they mean, which is just ridiculous. Um, to quote D.A. Carson, it's hard to think of a regional power uh, over Israel's history that they've not been enslaved to. 
from their formation coming out of slavery in Egypt to the period of the judges where the Philistines would oppress them to the Babylonian captivity, the Medo-Persian captivity. The Babylonians were overtaken by the Assyrians and the Greeks. Now, finally, the Romans. They've been enslaved to virtually every regional superpower. Maybe they mean that, which is ridiculous. I think it's also more likely and more probable here that they're speaking of spiritual freedom. They're, to some sense, tracking what Jesus is saying. So if they're claiming we've never been slaves to anyone, that's just silly. Um, it's hard to think that they're being that ridiculous. I think to some degree they're picking on what Jesus is saying. And what they're claiming then is, because the logic is, hey, we're Abraham's descendants. We aren't spiritually bound. We aren't spiritually tied up. We, we have privilege. We're in the right family. We don't need freeing. We're, we're, we're Abraham's descendants. That's their argument. And so therefore, point C um, they are likely speaking of spiritual freedom. They scoff at Jesus' offer of freedom. They scoff at Jesus' offer of freedom. We know from the other Gospels that they had a very high view of their descendant from descent from Abraham. In, in Matthew 8, Jesus, likely using their own terms, says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Likely their own term for themselves, they're sons of the kingdom. And so they, they're very proud and they're very secure in their descent from Abraham. And so when Jesus insinuates they need freeing, they get offended. So their, their, their faith is a self-righteous faith. It's a self-confident faith. It's an easily offended faith. What, what, do, you, what do you mean freeing? That might imply I'm, I'm a slave to somebody. I'm not a slave to anyone. I'm a child of Abraham. And then Jesus makes it clear, we saw this last week, what type of freedom he's talking about. It's not geopolitical freedom. We know the Jews wanted that. They want them to go take on Rome. And in chapter 6, verse 15, they're going to make him king by force. And Jesus makes it clear the freedom he's speaking about is freedom from slavery to sin. Jesus said to them in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, this is the first point where Jesus starts focusing on what you do. That is going to dominate this discussion, what you do, what you do. Just to, to highlight that, look down in verse 39 through 41. Five times the word for do is used. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did you are doing the works your father did. So this is where he introduces the notion of practice. What are you doing? And he says to them, look, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices, everyone who works, everyone who does sin is a slave to sin. Point one, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And we talked last week about how um, this, is, this is the imagery of bondage that people are in. It's a slavery, but it's a willing slavery. It's similar to our view of, of addiction. Go back to chapter 3 of John. If, you, if you've known anyone who's been in the thrall of addiction, they can simultaneously hate the thing they love. They can cry out against it, but yet every time they go back to whatever it is they're addicted to, they do so out of desire. They do so out of love and affection. Even if 23 hours of the day they hate the bottle, 
or whatever it is they're, they're enslaved to, when they return to it, they do so out of desire. They, they return to their master willingly. This is, this is the language of John 3. This is why people don't come to Jesus. I'm trying to show you this consistent teaching in John's gospel. So in 3.19, after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, we get the summary. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light. So I've said this again and again. This is about what you love. This is about what you desire. This is about what you crave. This is about your affections and your longings. This is not purely cognitive. People don't come to Jesus because they love something else. That, that's what John says. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light. Put that alongside of Jesus saying everyone who does sin is a slave to sin. It's a slavery of the affections, of the desires. That's the biblical picture. In, in, in contrast, you might picture a slave who 24 hours a day hates their master and wants to be free. The slavery we have to sin involves the fact that some part of us loves our master. Some part of us loves our slavery. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, which means then we're all born slaves to sin. And that's the freedom Jesus is offering. That's the freedom that comes from abiding in his word and being truly his disciple. We, we considered this all last week. And Jesus makes the point, pushing back on their claim to be descendants of Abraham, is that slaves don't remain in God's house forever. Slaves don't remain in God's house forever. Only sons do and daughters do. And by implication, he's saying, you're not sons and daughters while you remain slaves. That's, that's the rationale. Um, they don't like that, but that's his, that's his rationale. And he makes it clear, he alone can free people. Slaves don't remain in God's house forever. Point three, only Jesus the Son can grant true freedom. This is the exclusive claim Jesus makes again and again. He's not a way to God. He is the way to God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So their first claim, hey, we don't need freeing. We're, we're seed of Abraham. Jesus says, you're actually slaves to sin, and slaves don't remain in the house forever. You need to be set free by the one who is the son. You need to abide in him. He remains. He abides forever in the house. And so you remain in his teaching. You remain in him, and consequently, you remain in God's house. That's the first pushback. That's the first pushback, which brings us into the second point. Um, they hate him, Jesus, sorry, the fourth point. They hate him because they reject his word. And again, notice, notice the connection here. What you do with Jesus' word directly affects what you love, what you hate, what you do. They want to kill him, he says. So read this. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. And the reason they want to kill him it's because my word finds no place in you. So we're back again to the primacy of Jesus' word. He says, no, get it. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. But you want to kill me. Why do they want to kill him? <laughs> because my word finds no place in you. In other words, what they do with Jesus' word proves what team they're on, or better yet, proves what family they're in. And there's a negative sense. His word finds no place in them. And there's a positive sense. Now they want to kill him. They want to kill him. They're hostile to. They hate him because they reject 
his word. And then we get point five. They act as if they have a very different father. They act as if they have a very different father. Jesus speaks somewhat veiled here. He'll be very clear in a moment. I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. I'm going to pause here for a moment and explain the the picture of parentage that Jesus has in mind here, paternity. We oftentimes, with our um, genetic testing, um, think of parenting primarily as genetic. Jesus is using it far more functionally, economically. Turn back to chapter uh, 5, where this is first made clear. So Jesus, in chapter 5, is explaining what he means when he says he's the Son of God. Because that is a bold claim. He makes himself equal with God. And so the Jews are trying to kill him. And in 519, Jesus starts unpacking this category of sonship. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And and the picture Jesus has here is, is easy enough to understand. It's a child learning the family trade, the family business, the work from his father, following him around, dutifully paying attention. The son shows his love and his respect and his, his obedience by paying careful attention, but not innovating. And the father shows his love to the son by, let me show you how I do everything that I do. And so Jesus did this with his earthly father, Joseph, so that he's called the carpenter's son in some locations in the gospels and other places he's called the carpenter. This, this, is a, this is a notion of like father-like son or a chip off the old block that our expressions have. So when Jesus talks about their father, he's not making any negative statements about their mother. Um, he's rather speaking about how they act. And there's a whole host of Jewish expressions that pick up on this notion. A son of Beelzebul, a son of worthlessness. Um, this, this is straight Carson explaining this. It's something like, you're so totally worthless that the only possible explanation for you is that you're part of the worthless family. That's the idea. You're so, so characterized by this attribute that you're part of that family. And so Jesus is telling them they act, they're doing, they act as though they have a very different father. This is getting back to the, the theme of this morning's message that your actions reveal your true father. You're, you're gonna, this is the logic of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are peacemakers. What will peacemakers be called? Sons of God. And there Jesus is not teaching justification, salvation by peacemaking. Rather, he's assuming this logic. God is the ultimate peacemaker, and to the extent that you make peace, you act like your Father in heaven. To the extent that you make peace, you're like your Father. You're bearing his image. This is the logic that Jesus is using when he's talking about sonship. Um, it's, it's, um, It's economic. It's functional. They act as though they're a very different father. So the Jews, now that Jesus has clarified, whatever they mean by saying we've never been enslaved, Jesus makes it clear, I'm talking about slavery to sin. I'm talking about oppression in that sense. They double down and they say, Abraham is our father, which is a stronger claim than we're descendants. They claim to rather first be his his seed, his descendants. Now, Abraham is our father, is their claim in verse 39 which means they reject what Jesus has just said. No, no, we're not slaves to sin. Abraham is our father. So point A, they deny Jesus' declaration about them. They insist they are children of Abraham. They deny Jesus' declaration about them. 
This is a, a flat rejection. They insist, then, they are true sons of Abraham. So Jesus has made it clear. You're not acting like your father. No, no, we are. We are sons of Abraham. And thereby, for by implication, they insist that they will remain in God's house. So they've rejected what Jesus said. By the way, this proves, question, have these people abided in Jesus' word? No, they're choking on it. They're arguing with it. They're disagreeing with it. We're seeing they're not truly his disciples in the very way they interact with Jesus' words. They don't receive his words. They contradict his words. They argue back with his words. And that goes all the way back, remembering to Jesus as the prophet like Moses. What's the one thing you're supposed to do with a prophet like Moses? Listen to him. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, Moses writes, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus, as that prophet, says, look, you've got to abide in my word. You've got to receive my word. And these people choke on it, spit it out, and argue with it. So we see their unbelief because they don't receive Jesus' words. They find offense at Jesus' words. They disagree with him. They challenge him. They insist that they will remain in God's house. They insist that they will remain in God's house. And, and what they're saying then is they believe they're righteous or they're good to go. Maybe they need a little help, but the notion that they're fundamentally slaves, they need to be set free. No, 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 no. They reject that. They reject that. And even today, there's a certain faith in Jesus that can recognize him as a good teacher, a moral example, someone to help you out. But the fundamental notion that God's declaration on you and I is that we are born enslaved to sin. Our desires love sin. And the most innermost part of my being is corruption. I'm not a good person who sometimes does bad things. Rather, I'm a person who by nature hates the light, hates the truth, hates righteousness, and I need a new heart, and I need a new spirit put within me. I need to be born again. That, that's part of the offense, and that's part of what unsaving faith can choke on. So they insist they're children of Abraham. What does Jesus have to say to that? Um, Jesus' correction, point one. Functional, functional sonship is decisive. I know that can sound clunky, but I've tried a number of ways to say what I'm saying, and I'll try to explain it here. Jesus insists, get this, that how you act, how you function, what you do, is decisive, decisive, absolutely decisive, in proving what family you're in and who your father is. That's the central point of this morning's message. What you do, how you act, what you love, what works you perform, proves decisively who your father is spiritually. I mean, understand this. Jesus is talking to people who are very religious. They're at a religious festival. These are people, there may be some Jews who don't obey the law of Moses, who say, ah, traveling across the country is difficult and hard. I'm going to stay home this year. These guys went to the Feast of Booths. They're in the temple in Jerusalem. The text said they came to something you can call faith in Jesus. And Jesus is able to say, not I'm concerned or I have questions, flat out, nope, you're not on my team. You're not my father's children. You're children of the devil. Now, Jesus, we know from John chapter 2, knows what's in the heart of every man. He has, he has that. We don't have that. 
But just notice how absolute Jesus speaks. And notice the basis upon which he tells them. Even though Jesus knows what's in the heart of every man, he doesn't say, I I just know. Trust me, I know you're not sincere. He points to their works. He points to their works. Don't, Don't miss this. Jesus says to very religious people, keeping a legitimate religious holiday, on the great day, the Feast of Booths, people who are in the temple of God in Jerusalem, people who John has said twice have come to faith in Jesus. He tells them they're children of the devil, and his argument is exclusively on what they do and what they desire. That's how he argues. And, and we, we find this troubling because we want to make faith some inner, inscrutable thing, and you don't know my heart. Of course, I don't know your heart, but Jesus insists here and in many other places, we can see out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And there's a long line of Jesus' teaching. I'll read to you. To turn, turn to Matthew 7. This is the critical truth for us. Um, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be like these Jews who believe they are right with God. They're children of Abraham. They've come to some faith in Jesus. This is, this is the passage that God used to bring me to lostness that I might be saved. I, I, I identify with these Jews to some degree in that I would have thought I was a Christian and saved most of my life. And John, Matthew 7 was devastating to me. And I just want you to see that Jesus' teaching and his logic is of one cloth. It is It is united. He's consistent. He doesn't just say this one place. He says this many places. And and again, in our individualistic age where you don't know my heart and you don't know what's going on and it's between me and the Lord, Jesus' teaching here is, is devastating to such personalized, individualized, privatized religion. 715. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So first off, understand, Jesus isn't just giving us instructions on how to identify ourselves. In the the first instance, he's giving us instruction on how to identify other people, which is exactly what he's doing here in, in Jerusalem. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and every diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who's got an orthodox confession They're calling Jesus Lord. Jesus isn't interested primarily in what they say. He's interested in what they do. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The basis upon which Jesus says, I can show you we never knew each other. I can show you we never had that relationship. You were workers of lawlessness. You'll know them by their fruit. And Jesus here in John 8 knows these people by their fruit. 
And upon that basis, and upon that basis alone, he insists in the strongest terms, the most offensive thing I think you could say to them, your father is the devil. I mean, don't, don't miss the offense of such a statement to anyone, let alone to Jews. That is a strong, strong statement to make. And it's all based upon functional sonship. Functional sonship is decisive. So here's Jesus saying that. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. There's the functional functional sonship. If you were truly his sons, you'd do what Abraham did. Full stop. No exceptions. If... And this is the basis upon which he tells very religious Jews observing a legitimate holiday in God's temple who've come to some level of faith in him, your father's the devil. How can you say that? If you're Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. That's how. Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. So they want to kill Jesus for telling them the truth. That's part of the contrast between Abraham and them. Abraham obeyed and believed the truth. They are hostile to Jesus because of the truth. Their hostility has already been seen. And they're, what do you you mean you're going to set us free? You're not responding to the truth like Abraham did. You're, You're contradicting me. You're spitting it out. You're growing in hostility towards me. Jesus knows their hearts. We'll see their attempt to kill him at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 59. At this point, their attempt to kill him, I think, is only nascent in their hearts. But at 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. They're they're going to overtly try to kill Jesus here and now in this encounter at the end of it, the end of this chapter. They don't abide in his word. They want to kill him because he speaks to them the truth. Which means then, point three, they do not respond to God's word as Abraham did. What's the hallmark of Abraham? How is Abraham the father of faith? He believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, five through six, the Lord brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall their offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham is the father of faith insofar as God speaks to him. He has God's word. God's word is unbelievable, incredible. He tells an old man with an old wife, you will have children the number of the stars. Abraham believes God, and then he acts upon it. He leaves his home. Later, he believes God and offers up his son. Again and again, we see Abraham act upon Receive hard things from God. That's how Abraham responded to God's truth. And Jesus says, you're not responding to truth that way. You hate it and you want to kill me. You're not Abraham's kids. You're not doing what Abraham did. So we're still in the fundamental access of what do you do with Jesus' words, with God's truth? And then the, the, the contrast is what did Abraham do with God's word and God's truth? And what are you doing with God's word and God's truth? And that's how I know you're not Abraham's spiritual, true children, because you're not doing what Abraham did. They're actually, point four, doing the works of their true father. They're doing the works of their true 
Father. And Jesus here speaks a little more clearly, but he'll be clearer still in a moment. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So now they double down further. Um, they, they drop the question to Abraham. If you really want to push this, they say, in fact, God's our father, which is a really bold claim. There's very little evidence that any individual Jew in the Old Testament would call God father. David doesn't do it to my knowledge in the Psalms. Solomon in the temple dedication will refer to God as Israel's corporate father. Hosea talks about Israel being God's son called out of um, Egypt. And in Deuteronomy uh, 18, again, corporately, Moses writes, the Lord your God, no, sorry, Deuteronomy 32. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you? So again, this is a corporate title. So they, they grab onto that. You want to quibble with us about Abraham? Well, really, at the end of the day, we're God's children. We're God's children. They claim that God is their father. And they issue a rebuke to Jesus. I think their first statement, we're not born of sexual immorality, is meant to be a jab at Jesus. We know from John chapter 6, they know that at least many of these people know about Mary and Joseph. In John chapter 6, they say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom we know? So it's entirely possible they know about Mary's pregnancy prior to the, the consummation of their marriage, and they may be, be jabbing at Jesus. We're not born of sexual morality like you. Not certain, but I think that's probably what they're doing. They clearly are growing in their anger at Jesus. And, and what is clear either way is they're claiming we're pure-blooded Jews, we're descendants of Abraham, recipients of the promise. To, who, to us belong the scriptures and the fathers, the covenants. We're good to go. And they speak their confidence. First, their rebuke. We're not born of sexual morality. Next, their confidence. We have one father, even God. Jesus applies the exact same logic of functional sonship to them here. And he says, Jesus' rebuke, if God were your father, you would love me. Why? Because the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. And if you were God's children, you'd love what God loves. God loves me. If God were your father, you'd love me. That's Jesus' logic. It's still the same functional sonship argument. And John himself will argue this in his epistle in 1 John. Um, in 1 John chapter 5, Turn, turn to 1 John real fast. I'll, sh I'll show you this rationale used here. This is all over the New Testament, this notion of how you act, what you do, your works reveal your nature. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. The assumption being, again, if, if you love God, you're going to love those who God loves. This is part of the reason why your love for believers shows your children of God. Because if, if we, as God's children, are his beloved, well, then you're going to love what God loves if you're his child. That's, that's the logic. Turn back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 the same rationale is used. 3, 7. 
Part of the reason why I'm belaboring this point is it is repeatedly and abundantly clearly made in Scripture. And yet again, in the Western church, I think we have downplayed, denied, deceived ourselves on this point. We think we can believe X, Y, Z, and yet live A, B, C, and be okay. And again and again and again, the Scripture insists, no, your belief system is put on display every time you act. Every time I sin, it's because I believed a lie. Sin is literally and absolutely lived out unbelief. In that moment, I wasn't believing God. 1 John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. John anticipates people might try to deceive us on this next point. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. I wonder where John got that from. This is straight out of Jesus' teaching in our passage. And he just takes it and just hands it off to Christians. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. How can you say that? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's the same functional sonship. We know who, get this, by this, verse 10, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And it's all by what they do, what they practice, what they work at. And so Jesus here in John 8, you can turn back to John 8, is emphatic on this point. They insist God's their father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And notice again the connection of his word and who their true father is. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus' rebuke, if God were your father, you would love me. Jesus' proof, their desires are united with their father, the devil's desires. So, so don't, don't miss this. Um, we must not delude ourselves into thinking we can believe and claim to love Jesus, and God, and his righteousness, and then six days of the week live working at and serving sin. We must not deceive ourselves into thinking that saving faith is a purely mental issue. It involves the desires and the affections. Show me what you love. Show me what you spend your energy and your time on, and I'll show you your God. Show me what you do, and I'll show you what you value. And this is Scripture's claim again and again and again. Don't misunderstand me. We're not saved by doing things. But what we do shows who and what we are and what we believe. What we do, what we love, what we desire shows who our Father is. Certainly. With certainty. Let me, let me just read a few more passages on this point to you. 
Um, when we studied Luke's gospel, Jesus said in Luke 6, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. James 2, 18 to 20, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? One, one last passage I'll, I'll point you to. And again, um, I, I don't know if anyone in here is deceived as I was back in 1999, but the other passage along with Matthew 7 that God used to shatter my false assurance was 1 John 2, 3 to 5. By this we know that we have come to know him. And he doesn't say next that we wrote our name in our Bible. Back when, and, and let me pause. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that. If you know when you came to faith and you want to memorialize that, praise God. That's great. Don't base your assurance on that. I'm, I'm only critiquing finding your confidence in that. You want to memorialize when the Lord God brought you to life, saves you? That's wonderful. Don't build your assurance on that memory. Build your assurance on what Scripture says to build your assurance on. 1 John 2. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And what's brutal about this passage is he doesn't just leave it there. Because if he just said that, you might think, well, he doesn't tell us what to make of the person who this doesn't keep the commandments. Well, he does. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. So Jesus here, um, and this, this may seem harsh to you, your father's the devil. These people are, are thick-headed. They are hard-hearted. They are stubborn. You notice how his, his, his declarations about their father being the devil start somewhat subtle, veiled, and get more and more clear. He is lovingly trying to awaken them to the fact that they're not good to go. They're not freed from their sins. They are not going to remain in the house. And that is a loving thing to do. He doesn't start with your father's the devil, but when they don't pick up with what he's saying, when they resist what he's saying, he speaks plainly to them. He speaks plainly to them. And sure enough, they will try to kill him at the end of this encounter. So the point for us then would be, to not allow ourselves to be deceived by this. Take John's warning in 1 John, little children, let no one deceive you. Not that our obedience will be perfect, not that the fruit on the tree will be without exception, but if you've been born of God, you will live differently. You will love different things. You will desire different things. You will do different things. You will see growth. You will see evidences of faith. Um, and And... We will reveal who our Father is by what we do. The scripture is clear on this. And the warnings against people deluding and deceiving themselves are all over the New Testament. Let no one deceive you. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made evident. Jesus takes on the most religious people of his day in the temple of God on the high day of the feast, and his sole argument that he uses for why their father's the devil is he knows what they're doing, and he knows what they love, and that is sufficient to prove the matter. Let us receive his word of faith. Let's pray as we sing our final song. Lord God, Give us the faith to receive these hard words. Um, Guard us from the deception that says we can love idols, that we can serve sin, and yet be your children. Break down strongholds of thought in our our life. Give us faith. um, Guard us from deception. and, And grant us the freedom to obey you, the freedom to serve you. Until Christ comes, in Jesus' name, amen.